Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Wildfires at the size and intensity seen out west are something New Englanders haven't had to worry about. But could we be at risk of more wildfires if drought persisted in our region? Coming up, we'll talk with Connecticut's fire control officer. First, the nation's attention remains on California, where a wildfire that started one week ago in the northern part of the state has killed at least 56 people. Statewide, 59 have died in California, and there are dozens missing. Another fire has burned nearly 100,000 acres in Southern California. Do you have family or friends affected by these wildfires? You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. We wanted to spend part of today's show learning about wildfires and the multiple factors that have made some more destructive and more deadly than ever before. My guest has spent years studying wildfires, even fighting some of them. Joining us from a studio at University of Colorado Boulder is Michael Cotis. He's deputy director for the Center for Environmental Journalism at the university. He's also an author of the book Megafire, The Race to Extinguish a Deadly Epidemic of Flame. And some of you may recognize his name. Uh, Michael spent uh, years working as a writer and photojournalist for the Hartford Current. Michael, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me on. So we know, uh, listening uh, to the news, that there are two uh, big fires right now in California, the Camp Fire in Northern California, and in Southern California, I believe it's the Woolsey Fire. Um, And we've been hearing, uh, Michael, that the Camp Fire is the deadliest in California history. Um, It's also November. Is it normal to be seeing these massive wildfires in California at this time? Um, yeah, we're in, you know, uh, California's uh, most significant fire season. Um, these fires are particularly destructive for a number of factors that are kind of laying on top of the the normal uh, Santa Ana wind-driven fires that, that we see this time of year in, in California. Uh, you might recall that just a year ago, we had uh, first uh, a very destructive fire in Northern, Color- uh, Northern California that burned in to Santa Rosa, the the city in in, uh, Northern uh, California. And um, then uh, just uh, a few weeks later, we had another fire blow up uh, near Los Angeles, the Thomas Fire. And both of those were incredibly destructive fires. And in fact, uh, last year was the most destructive fire year on record in California um, until this year. Oh, your book again is called Megafire. When we hear that term, is that what we're thinking about when we see this fire, the Camp Fire, uh, being so destructive and deadly in Northern California now? Well, it is um, by uh, the most basic definition and by most definitions. So um, the U.S. Forest Service defines a megafire as any fire that is bigger than 100,000 acres. And so I believe both of the fires currently burning in California um, meet that definition. But um, 
uh, a lot of people would argue that that's not necessarily the best way to determine what a megafire is. Um, there are lots of fires of that size that burn in remote wildernesses or you know deep in in forested lands that really don't threaten homes or infrastructure that we're dependent on or resources like watersheds that um, have you know are in an area where fires of that size have always burned and uh, we have lots of small fires that destroy a lot of homes, kill people, um, put resources and infrastructure at risk that are probably a lot more mega than those really big fires that burn in remote uh, wildernesses. In the case of both of the fires currently burning in California, they meet almost all the criteria for mega fires. They've got the size and they've also been incredibly destructive and have uh, displayed fire behaviors that uh, firefighters have rarely seen. So it's very difficult for them to figure out how to deal with them. When you say fire behaviors, what do you mean, Michael? Well, um, you know, we've seen a lot of things change in the West in wildfires over the last uh, several years. One would be um, uh, the tendency of fires to burn intensely through the night when they often would lay down at night. Um, uh, Higher temperatures are causing um, the humidity to stay low um, at night. And uh, fires that used to calm down a little bit at night and give firefighters uh, the early morning to try to get a jump on them um, are burning really intensely because that humidity is not coming up overnight and constant, you know, uh, uh, consequently tamping down the flames. So that's one example. Uh, another example of a fire behavior that, that firefighters have been seeing uh, more frequently is fires that burn intensely and fast downhill. Fire wants to run uphill and uh, often, um, you know, uh, particularly what we saw in Paradise where you have a community that's up on a on a ridgetop. Um, the most destructive fires we see are fires that move really fast uphill, which is what we expect from a wildfire. We don't expect what we've seen in some of these fires where uh, the fire moves almost as fast downhill as it was moving uphill due to combinations of wind and how dry fuels are and, and topography uh, that combine to kind of uh, change that fire's behavior. I'm speaking with Michael Cotis today. He's the author of this book, Megafire, The Race to Extinguish a Deadly Epidemic of Flame. Uh, You may be following the news out of California, the state's deadliest wildfire, uh, with at least uh, 59 dead statewide. Uh, Michael, uh, you have also trained uh, and been studying uh, wildfires for some time. Where did that interest come from? Um, it actually started in Connecticut, of all places, uh, back uh, when I was uh, uh, probably in my first year working as a journalist. I, I went to uh, a fire um, in, uh, in northern Connecticut and, uh, you know, hopped over a couple of fences to get to where I could see a smoke column rising and, and make some photographs of the men who were digging a line around a grass fire. And uh, before I could make any photographs, uh, heard some screaming and and uh, a gentleman who was about twice my size and wearing a badge was running at me and tackled me. And as it turned out, I had uh, strayed onto one of Connecticut's prisons to uh, make photographs of this fire. And all of the 
firefighters were prison inmates um, and actually did make a very dramatic photo of the fire nearly overrunning one of these prison inmates. Um, but it also got me really interested in this idea that, boy, you know, prison inmates fight wildfires. And, and when I looked into that, I discovered, well, actually thousands of prison inmates fight wildfires throughout the West. And most of them fight wildfires outside of the prison grounds. Uh, you know, we needed uh, so many wild uh, wildland firefighters to deal with this uh, exponential increase in wildfire that we were starting to see in the late 1980s and the 1990s, that we were uh, creating all kinds of programs to get more bodies to fight these fires. And one of those broad, uh, programs was a program that we find in almost every Western state that allows prison inmates to be parts of fire crews and, and work on these fires. And uh, in fact, in, in, in California, one, uh, one person I spoke to estimated that um, in most of their fire season, if you were to show up at any given wildfire, because they you know, deal with hundreds, sometimes more than half of the firefighters on a given wildfire are prison inmates. Are there any uh, concerns or critiques of that practice, Michael, that uh, prison inmates are the ones fighting uh, uh, these fires? Because I, from, in, from your book, just learning about uh, these uh, teams, whether it's in California or Arizona or Colorado, a lot of the fire departments uh, rely on volunteers. Uh, that's true. And, and uh, it's something that I wrote about uh, pretty extensively early on in my book because, um, you know, across the country, uh, about half of our firefighters are volunteers. Uh, here in Colorado, that number can approach two-thirds of the, the firefighters that we see uh, working on fires are, are volunteers. And, you know, they often don't get a, a lot of attention. Um, they are not the uh, uh, super well-resourced uh, hotshots that that we see with all kinds of incredible uh, tools and air power behind them. They're often just uh, family members in rural communities that are often under-equipped and, and not even really trained to deal with wildfires, and yet they make up a huge portion of the front line of people who fight wildfires. As far as prisoners go, uh, one of the most interesting um, aspects of that is most of the prisoners that I've talked to or worked beside when I've worked on wildfires have really wanted to do that job. They get to spend time in the woods. They've found it very, very fulfilling. However, they're, they're very poorly paid if they're paid at all. In, in California, often they're paid somewhere between 50 cents and a dollar an hour to do this dangerous job. And very often, they're not eligible to work as firefighters once they're released from prison, even though they have been trained and given the skills to do that. And, and that's quite a frustration for a lot of people involved in, uh, in prison wildland firefighting programs. You're listening uh, to Where We Live as we talk about uh, wildfires uh, because of the tragedy in California right now. Uh, with us from a studio at University of Colorado in Boulder is Michael Cotis, author of the book Megafire. And you can join our conversation. Do you have family or friends uh, in California? Are you worried about them? Or have you lived in parts of uh, the West uh, where wildfires is, is part of uh, every year? You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Uh, Michael, in your book, you talk about uh, examining the multiple factors. Uh, it's easy for people to just uh, think about a climate and a drought as uh, making these fires worse. But there's actually a series of things that have happened over the last uh, century that have led to these fires that we see today. Can you walk us through um, first uh, how uh, 
people in communities uh, since the time of Teddy Roosevelt have looked at the, the need to fight fires and what has happened in our forests because of that. Yeah. So, you know, uh, a little over a century ago, there was a fire called the Big Burn in 1910 in, in the Bitterroot Mountains of uh, Montana and Idaho. And uh, uh, that fire was actually about the size of Connecticut and uh, destroyed entire towns, was actually burning over the town of Wallace, Idaho. And a ranger in that town was leading a crew of firefighters, of about 50 firefighters, and was about to be overrun by the fire that he described as having the roar of 1,500 trains on 1,500 trestles and knew that they, they would not survive um, and, and saw one out for themselves, which was a, a mine shaft he knew about. And he led his entire crew to this mine shaft and got them to get inside it. And when the crew panicked and tried to run, he pulled his pistol out and he held his crew at gunpoint in this mine shaft and saved most of their lives. I think five of the firefighters ended up dying either of smoke inhalation or, or other things while they were in the mine shaft. And uh, that, that ranger's name was Ed Pulaski. He was horribly injured and uh, realized that uh, one of the problems that they had was they didn't have purpose-built tools for wildfire. And since he couldn't work as a ranger anymore, he decided he'd build one of those. He welded an axe to a hoe, and that tool is called a Pulaski to this day. Um, uh, so even wildland firefighters uh, who don't know that story shout his name out on pretty much every fire line because it's the most common tool in wildland firefighting in America to this day. Um, it's a pretty incredible legacy out of that fire, but the legacy in Washington was to latch on to the heroism of these firefighters and the destructiveness of that fire and basically start a zero pol uh, tolerance policy towards wildfire in America's forests. The next five directors of the uh, um, U.S. Forest Service were veterans of that fire, and uh, they increasingly became um, focused on on fighting fires and basically eradicating wildfire from our forests. And by the 1930s, uh, they had uh, created what they called the out by 10 a.m. policy, which is basically any natural wildfire in, in U.S. forests uh, across the country had to be extinguished by 10 a.m. the day after it was sighted. And if you failed to do that, then you had till 10 a.m. the day after that. And it really wasn't until the 1960s and 70s that uh, ecologists and foresters realized what a terrible idea that was because we have many forests that are very dependent on frequent fires. For instance, uh, the lower elevation ponderosa pine forests here in Colorado and in New Mexico and in Arizona um, had fires burn through them at low intensity every two, five, ten years. And so it, it, it doesn't take, you know, great skills with math to figure out that if you put out every fire for a century in a forest where you had fire clearing out brush and deadfall and competing species every two or five years, you're going to have exponentially more fuel in that forest after a century. And, and that's what's happened with many of our forests. Some of our forests in, in the southwest have as many as 40 times more trees in them than they had historically before we had that policy. So when a fire gets loose in those forests that are really badly overgrown, it behaves entirely differently differently than fires did historically in that forest. And so that's, that's one of the complications to the uh, wild, uh, the fire cycle in, in the Western United States in particular um, that, ha that has made these fires more destructive and deadly. Um, 
When, when we look at uh, Paradise, California, which has gotten a lot of attention because I believe 20,000 uh, residents there have been displaced, uh, many uh, deaths, uh, dozens missing. Uh, when we think about how development has uh, progressed in those areas, uh, Michael, I was listening to a story NPR did the other day with the reporter Eric Westervelt, and he, he mentioned something that I wanted to play for our listeners. There are questions being raised by some who evacuated that, you know, could more have been done to train, to plan, to prepare people for this kind of emergency, especially since this town was built right into the forest. And that uh, sentence built right into the forest. If you could talk about um, how these uh, towns have sprung up, where they're really abutting these forests, where all of this dry fuel, as you mentioned, uh, remains. Yeah, so... You know, we've got this perfect recipe for disastrous wildfires like this, and we've talked a little bit about climate and higher temperatures and increasing drought, which is, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, something that uh, makes fire in any conditions, you know, more likely and makes it burn faster and hotter, and that we've got many forests that have far more fuel in them, vegetation, than they had historically. And then the other part of that recipe is development. And we've had a, a, you know, a, a huge increase in development in the West, particularly since the turn of the millennium back in 2000. So that the U.S. Forest Service a few years ago uh, used uh, mapping and satellite data to do an estimate of how many homes in the U.S. are in the, what they call the wildland urban interface, where communities and homes abut flammable forests and flammable landscapes. And their estimate was that more than a third of U.S. homes are in that area where they could possibly burn down in a wildfire. That's 44 million homes in the United States and not just in the West. Um, So we've seen this huge increase in development in very flammable landscapes. And very often those developments, uh, and we saw saw this in Paradise and in many other fires uh, that have been disasters in the last few years, are not really built in a way to prepare for the inevitable fire that they'll face. Um, In the case of Paradise, you've just got a couple of roads that go in. Um, They're windy mountain roads that are very difficult to travel when they're smoked out and there's fire on either side of the roads. And the population has gone from, I think, somewhere around 7,000 people to, you know, getting closer to 30,000 people. So um, when you have a fire that threatens that community, um, it's very difficult to evacuate the the town. It's very slow to get everybody out of there, and uh, the roads are very prone to being uh, surrounded by fire or burned over by fire, which is what we saw in Paradise, with you know people being trapped in their cars and and, and dying in their cars as the flames overran the roads. Um, you know, the final. Um, uh, part of that is that most of the homes that we have seen built into the wild and urban interface are not built in a way to be prepared for wildfire. Um, you know, uh, the the way we would build uh, to uh, you know have a home be uh, less vulnerable to a wildfire and more resilient to it mean is expensive so you know building with a metal roof rather than you know a shingle roof having special vents so embers can't get inside the house and clearing all the land or you know managing the land around the house so that you don't have uh, needles collecting in areas to allow an ember to ignite the home and and the trees are limbed up and thinned so that it's uh, less likely that a fire 
will ignite that house. Well, that takes a lot of work and a lot of money. And most people that have built into these areas, you know, have not, uh, you know, put that effort and that expense into their homes. So you have many communities out there that are are very flammable um, and are very difficult to evacuate. And increasingly, we're expecting wildland firefighters who really aren't supposed to be structure firefighters and protecting homes to stand in between fires that are much more explosive than they were in the past and communities that are not prepared for uh, the inevitable fire that's going to come on to them. Uh, Before we head to break, Michael, we were talking again about some of the policies in place, uh, these fire suppression efforts that have led to so much dry fuel in forests uh, on the western side of our country. Uh, We're also hearing about the impact of massive development. Uh, But in your book, you talk about under uh, the George W. Bush administration, there were efforts to try to get rid of some of that dry fuel, so to speak, all of this this dense uh, uh, growth in forests. But because of where homes are being built, uh, residents there don't even want the natural burns to take place. Uh, Yeah. You know, one thing that we've been discussing in the country for a few decades now is the need to reintroduce fire into a lot of these landscapes. It's really the only cost-effective way to uh, remove a lot of that vegetation. And uh, it's uh, uh, dangerous. You know, we've got overgrown forests. They're often near communities. And communities have also gotten maybe a a little spoiled in that, you know, uh, we love to talk about these beautiful blue skies in the West, but those skies uh, a century or more ago were probably darkened as often by smoke as they were by clouds. And fire is uh, a, a natural part of these forests, and most of these forests are dependent on fire to remain healthy. But it's very difficult once you have a community in that forest to convince people that either we should let a natural fire burn and do its good work for that forest at a time of year when it's not um, risky to let it burn or to allow foresters and firefighters to go in and, and start a prescribed burn in which they would intentionally burn that forest to mimic what natural fire would do to that forest. It's been really difficult to do that. And, you know, there's another aspect to that that was true in, in uh, it's true currently, and it was true during the Bush administration, the idea that we can send people in to mechanically uh, remove all that fuel. So, you know, send uh, uh, foresters in with axes and chainsaws to, to remove fuel. And, and, and very often that ends up being a discussion about logging. And, and if we had more logging, um, that our forests would probably be less prone to really serious fires. But there's a there's an economic conundrum at the heart of that argument that we haven't been able to figure out, which is the big trees that are valuable to timber operations are the trees that are resistant to wildfire and make a forest less prone to burn really significantly or, or really fast or you know really intensely. And the material that we need to remove from our forests is often really scrappy, uh, you know, small trees and deadfall and grasses and scrub that have no economic value. So we haven't really figured out a way to to find a way to use that material or to find a way to uh, put a value on that material so it's worthwhile for a timber operation to go in and take it out. We're going to head to break. Uh, my guest today, Michael Cotis, author of Megafire. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we're going to continue our conversation and meet one of the Connecticut team members who are trained to help battle wildfires out west. Do you have family or friends affected by the fires in California? Join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. 
This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The nation's attention remains on California, where the deadliest fire in that state's history has killed nearly 59 residents statewide as of this morning. Dozens are missing. Uh, my guest today is Michael Cotis, author of the book Megafire, The Race to Extinguish a Deadly Epidemic of Flame. His book tries to answer why these fires out west have gotten more intense and deadly over the last 40 years. You can join our conversation, too, 860 Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Michael, uh, in your book, uh, you cite a statistic from the U.S. Department of Agriculture, I believe, uh, that mentions the climate, that climate has expanded fire season out west by 78 days. Can you talk a little bit about uh, how uh, the change in climate is impacting our forests and making them drier? Um, sure. So the, the easiest way to see that is uh, to just look at a snow-capped peak in the west. Um, when you see snow on a mountain and a, and a green forest below it, well, that snow on the top of that mountain is effectively a trickle reservoir that keeps the forest below it moist and less prone to burn. And when we have thinner snowpack, uh, snow that arrives later in the season and melts off earlier in the season, those forests are available to burn that much earlier in the season. And, that, and that's what we've been seeing. Um, you know, even years where we get the same amount of snow that we have in the past, um, the snow tends to melt off earlier because the temperatures are warmer. And very often we're getting less snow than we did historically. So that's leaving our, um, our forests uh, available to burn at uh, times of year here in Colorado in the spring and, and late into the fall and even into the winter. We had one wildfire in Rocky Mountain National Park in 2012 that actually burned straight through the winter. So that's a, a fire burning in uh, the highest, one of the coldest parks in the uh, contiguous United States that had a, a wildfire in it right through the winter. Um, so uh, that that's the the biggest driver. But there's a number of other ways that climate impacts wildfire. It, it allows certain species that are flammable to move into landscapes where they weren't common before, to move higher in elevation on certain mountains. So you know, we end up with more flammable species living in areas that they didn't used to live in before. And <clears throat> We also um, see uh, uh, the climate impacts helping various forest pests uh, like uh, the mountain pine beetle um, uh, spread deeper into forests and do more damage in forests. Uh, the most recent uh, mountain pine bark beetle epidemic that we had here out in the West was uh, many times larger than any other that we've seen in history. And uh, those beetles killed uh, an area of lodgepole pine forests about the size of the state of Colorado uh, between uh, British Columbia and the Mexico border. In studio with me here on Where We Live, uh, besides speaking with Michael Cotis, joining us from Colorado, is Rich Shank. He's fire control officer for Connecticut's Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, and he's been fighting wildfires out west since the 1980s. He also runs the Connecticut, helps run the Connecticut Interstate Fire Crew. Uh, Rich, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. So we've been listening uh, to Michael uh, describe, again, these uh, several factors leading uh, to uh, so-called megafires that we're seeing uh, out west. 
West. You've uh, fought some of these fires uh, um, way back starting in the 80s. Uh, Tell us um, how the forests have changed from your perspective. Just as you were saying, we used to have a break in fires, and that's when we did our training. And that affects when we can train. So we're starting the fire season earlier, and we're going later into the fire season. And because of that, we're not able to get in the mandatory training that we need to do every year and to advance in the fire. So it's definitely longer seasons. And I think it wears on the firefighters. We're asking guys to work a 16-hour day for two weeks. You can extend for an extra week, and then you have to take two days off. So 21 days on a fire is a lot of time on the fire. And physically, it has, you know, things that happen to you or your knees are going to go out. You do this for a living many years. Those fire crews used to get breaks, and now we're pushing them, and we're pushing them really hard, and we're seeing things like suicide rates are increasing, alcoholism in the fire crews are, are increasing. Their downtime isn't the downtime it used to be. Let's talk more about uh, the pressures on uh, these wildland firefighters, uh, Michael, uh, which, you know, you focus a lot on what happened in Yarnell, uh, Arizona, where 19 hotshots uh, died in that deadly fire just a, a few years ago. Um, much of the pressure that's on them uh, to fight these fires that are becoming uh, more intense. Uh, um, how does that impact the training they're receiving, Michael? Um, well, it, it, it's changed things a lot. And, and first, actually, I want to thank Rich because my first certification to fight wildfires was in the program that he runs. So, uh, you know, uh, for uh, good or bad, uh, you know, he's at least partially responsible for where I'm at now. Um, uh, in the case of the, the tragedy with the Granite Mountain hotshots on Yarnell Hill, the, the greatest mystery about the, the 19 hotshots who were killed was that a half hour before they died, they were in a safety zone in what firefighters call the black, um, an area that had already been burned by this fire, so there was no fuel left for the fire to get to them. And when they died, they were in a canyon that any firefighter would recognize as a death trap. And the only explanation for them being there, there were no survivors or witnesses uh, you know, among the crew that marched into that canyon, um, but the, the only real explanation is that they were trying to get to the town of Yarnell, um, which was being burned over by the fire, and uh, they wanted to do what they could to help out there. Um, the problem there is that that's not really a wildland firefighter's job. Um, you know, uh, wildland firefighters are trained to work on fires in, in uh, forests and in uh, vegetated landscapes, not in towns and cities. It's a lot easier to step back from a fire that's blowing up when it's just going to destroy a bunch of trees than it is when it's going to destroy a bunch of homes. And you may know some of the people who uh, live in those homes. Um, and we're increasingly seeing wildland firefighters uh, being expected to get engaged Uh, with fires and try to prevent them from getting into towns. And that changes the equation for the wildland firefighter. Um, When I uh, re-upped my red card, uh, the certification to fight wildfires, a few years ago, um, 
the training had had changed quite a bit from when I got that first one um, in Connecticut. Um, and a couple of things that really stood out to me were, uh, you know, uh, questions about what do you do when you've got a long and winding driveway um, and you're fighting a wildland fire? Um, there was actually a question about what to do if you encounter a meth lab while you are uh, dealing with a wildfire in the woods. Um, so increasingly wildland firefighters who are trained to work on fires in in forests and in vegetated landscapes are having to deal with uh, the trappings of, of civilization, with homes, with all of the fuels that we introduce to uh, to the wildland-urban interface. And that is not something that they're really prepared to deal with. They don't have the fire trucks and the heavy bunker clothes and, uh, you know, the oxygen or the uh, air tanks and uh, masks that a, a structure firefighter has to deal with those things. I'm speaking with Michael Codis, who's the author of the book Megafire, The Race to Extinguish a Deadly Epidemic of Flame. He's joining us from a studio at University of Colorado, Boulder. And in studio with me is Rich Shank, fire control officer for Connecticut, uh, part of uh, Department of Environmental and, and Energy and Environmental Protection. And he also helps run the Connecticut Interstate Fire Crew. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Christina's calling from Portland. Christina, go ahead. Um, Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. I was one of the first women uh, in California to fight fires after an affirmative action um, bill was passed, and um, I uh, worked for the California Department of Forestry, which is now Cal Fire. And um, when I was in the academy um, to train, um, there's a lot of pushback against me because I was a woman, and ironically, it was two former inmates who actually helped me train, and it was um, through their efforts that I passed the academy. So I was just curious to know, when did they stop hiring former inmates? All right, Christina, uh, thank you for your question. I guess I'll uh, go first to uh, Rich uh, Shank, who, again, is one of the uh, Connecticut uh, fire uh, control officers in the state. So when we think about the people that are part of your fire crew, who are the ones that you're working with? We we have an intermix of it used to be about half state employees coming out of Department of Environmental Protection and about half of the private sector, folks like Michael that came in for some reason into our program, we train them. We train all our fighter all our firefighters at a national level. And the rest of the country does the same thing. So pieces are interchangeable. Um, so the makeup of that 50-50, we had about an 80-person roster. We, we used to send, starting when I started in the 80s, it was about a crew a year. And then it increased to maybe three crews a year. And in recent times, we've dropped back and our um, employees of the state of Connecticut have multiple jobs within our agency. And the agency has kind of felt that we don't have enough people to send out. So those numbers on the state side have decreased where the numbers on the private sector side, the volunteer firefighters, the folks like Michael that come into the programs, those numbers have increased. 
There's a great picture that uh, Michael Cotis mentioned that he took uh, as a, a photojournalist uh, back in Enfield in, in the 80s where uh, there were inmates at this particular prison uh, that were helping fight a brush fire. Do, do uh, Does any uh, department in the state of Connecticut still use uh, inmates to help fight fires if needed? That was one of my first programs was I worked with an inmate crew, and we used the inmate crew, and I'm in the eastern half of the state, so we picked up guys from the Brooklyn jail system. We train them as firefighters. We train them as maintainers within the parks, and we utilize that system. Um, it was one of the programs that kind of went by the wayside with our department. Again, this is where we live, and you can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. I wanted to talk a little bit, uh, before we run out of time, Michael, about uh, how you uh, mentioned in your book about uh, what's called the fire industrial complex. What do you mean by that in terms of how the policies have uh, expanded or uh, moved forth in in our country? Um, So a lot of um, veteran firefighters and uh, uh, people who've been involved with fire for a long time have have kind of picked up that term, the fire industrial complex. And a lot of it deals with how much industry has built up around fighting wildfires. Um, uh, There is a lot of money in wildfire in the United States. Back in the early 1990s, the nation uh, uh, spent about uh, $300 million a year dealing with wildfires. In a bad fire year now, um, that easily tops $3 billion. We, we, we beat three, $3 billion last year. I'm sure um, when the final figures come in for the, the 2018 season, which really just wrapped up as far as the, the fiscal count accounting goes, will also uh, be over $3 billion. Um, that's led to uh, a complete change in the um, Forest Service mission. Um, in 1995, about 16% of the Forest Service budget was spent dealing with wildfires. And uh, today, uh, well, last year, uh, 56% of the Forest Service budget was spent dealing with wildfires. Their anticipation is that within about five or six years, about two-thirds of the Forest Service budget will be spent on wildfires. So a lot of people actually call them the fire service now rather than the Forest Service. But a lot of that money uh, that gets spent on wildfires is going to the private sector, you know, more than half of it. So when you see you know, the helicopters and planes, those are usually from fire contractors, the commissaries in a fire camp, the uh, mobile showers, the laundries, um, right through the people who sell T-shirts to commemorate uh, certain fires. These are all uh, people uh, in the private sector that are making money off of wildfires. And uh, that industry uh, wants to fight every fire, regardless of whether maybe certain fires should be allowed to burn or are, are too dangerous to fight or for one reason or another, we shouldn't be throwing those resources at them. And so that's really um, affected how we decide how we're going to fight fire is that there is uh, so much of the private sector dependent on the money that we spend on wildfires. I should mention uh, Stratford-based Sikorsky actually builds the firehawks that are being used in uh, L.A. County's fire department.
Department to help uh, ba- battle these uh, fires. Uh, you know, we just have a few minutes left, Michael, and I'm curious with, again, the attention on that Yarnell Hill uh, fire in Arizona, with these deadly fires now in California, with all the factors we talked about, uh, the fire suppression and all this dry fuel that's that are in our forests, as well as massive development, um, the fact that you have you know ne- nearly 60 people that are dead and hundreds missing. You know, what's going to change uh, to, you know, to help battle these fires in the future? Well, you know, um, we have uh, some trend lines that are really terrifying, both uh, in the West, but really across the country. Um, you know, I might point out, we, you know, uh, it's easy on the East Coast to kind of see the wildfire problem as this exotic Western problem. But, you know, just two years ago, we saw a fire um, in, uh, you know, uh, around Thanksgiving in Tennessee that burned into Gatlinburg and Pigeon Ford and, uh, Forge and uh, destroyed a number of homes and killed 12 people. So this is increasingly a national problem. Um, um, in, in 2015, for the first time since the Forest Service kept records, the U.S. had uh, 10 million acres burn in a single fire season. Um, Forest Service scientists, however, around that time uh, did some research and estimated that by the middle of the century, we're going to see twice that amount of land burn in, in a fire season. So that's an area, if it's 20 million acres, that is close to the size of the state of Maine burning in a single fire year in the United States. Um, uh, and clearly, uh, both from the the cost level, how much money we're spending on it, and the number of homes and uh, fatalities that we're seeing, this huge increase in losses of homes and lives and wildfires, we're going to have to change the way we're dealing with them. And uh, a lot of leaders of our uh, firefight believe that we're going to have to start thinking less about fighting wildfire and more about learning how to live with wildfire and investing more money in making sure that these communities that are in wildernesses uh, or abutting flammable forests are uh, uh, zoned and built in certain ways with appropriate ingress and egress or uh, uh, expecting more of what we saw in paradise where entire towns are burned down in, in terrible wildfires. So we're really going to have to re think the way we deal with wildfire in our forests. That's not to say we won't fight fires that threaten things that are of value to us, but we're also going to have to make huge investments in preparing uh, our nation, our infrastructure, our homes for the, the predicted increase in wildfire across the country. Uh, Megafire is an exceptional book if you want to understand uh, what's happening with these wildfires and, again, the multiple factors leading to the intensity and destruction uh, that California, unfortunately, is seeing uh, today. I want to thank uh, Michael Kodis again. uh, One of the startling statistics in here for me is that scientists and foresters are uh, saying that uh, the country could see 20 million acres burning each year uh, in our future if changes aren't made today. Thank you, Michael Kodis, again, joining us from the studios of uh, University of Colorado in Boulder. Again, a longtime photojournalist and a Hartford Current alum. Michael, thanks for speaking with us today. Thanks for having me on. It was really great to be talking in Connecticut again.
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Uh, we've been focusing on the huge fires out west, but is this something that we should be concerned about here in the New England region? Again, in studio with me is Rich Shank, Fire Control Officer for the State Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, or DEEP. We're going to find out more about the work uh, that these firefighters are doing in Connecticut and New England to battle brush fires. And you can join us too, 860-275-7266. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest in studio is Connecticut resident Rich Shank, who's been fighting fire since he was 16, growing up in the town of Hampton. Uh, much of our show today focused on causes behind these so-called megafires out west. But we wanted to know, could this ever be an issue here in New England? Uh, Rich, again, you're a fire control officer f- uh, for Connecticut, and you help run the Connecticut Interstate Fire Crew. Uh, should we, we be concerned if we see uh, several years of drought like we did recently? that brush fires could go out of control in, in Connecticut? We, we definitely should be. Um, the potential, the historic fires that have been here, there were fires from 1905 to about 1915 were the peak. In 1915, there was over 100,000 acres burned in the state of Connecticut. Most of our fires now are smaller, and I guess that can be attributed to the change of the forest In the West, as we don't suppress fires, the forest becomes more volatile. As we have our forest here in Connecticut and we suppress fires, we notice that the vegetation that grows under, it's a deciduous forest predominantly, and that shades the forest floor. And that shading the forest floor um, shades the fuels, making the moisture high, so the fires don't get as large or as big. Our fire season starts about May 15th or March 15th and runs through May 15th, typically. And then we may have a summer or a fall fire season. And the reason we have our seasons at that time of year is because the canopy is open. If you looked out now, you're going to see the tree canopy is off and we're getting rain every day. But if you had dry weather and sun beating down, those leaves dry out within an hour or two. Mm -hmm. And so it may not be a drought. It could just be a week period where you haven't had rain and there's heavy winds, slope, And what we have here in the state is a lot of houses intermixed in a lot of forested area, probably more so than in the West. We have a lot of homes that are are threatened by fire, could easily be threatened by fire given the right conditions. I mentioned you're part of uh, the Connecticut Fire Control. You're the fire control officer, one of two uh, for the state. Um, How have uh, state budgets in recent years impacted the personnel you have to go out there and either uh, deal with, uh, you know, brush fires that break out or, or other concerns, Rich? You know, it, it's not just the state of Connecticut. This is a problem across the country. It's an aging workforce. Um, I've been working for the department for 30 years. I'm pretty old to be doing this. And the guys that I started with, we were really pro-fire. We got a chance to go out and fight fires. My first fire in Yellowstone really hooked me in this. Um with issues of state not being able to send folks out, we start to lose those people. Those are the people that we train with, and they train our younger workforce. To start out as somebody coming out of high school or college, you could be a brain surgeon before you can be a Type 2 incident commander on a national fire. It takes a lot of time and energy to get the training and experience 
20 to 30 years for some of these people, and you're at the tail end of that. So we're seeing a decrease in the workforce. It affects us in the state of Connecticut because the maintainers and foresters, the numbers are way down from what they were when I started. If a brush fire were to go out of control in the state, heaven forbid, do, you ha- do we have enough people in the state that could handle that? Would they be uh, calling on uh, local fire departments to assist? We every, every fire in the state of Connecticut, by statute, the fire chief or his highest ranking officer is in charge of that fire. We come in to assist those agencies, those towns, um, they're predominantly volunteer fire departments and the pay departments that have staffing issue. Fire that may happen in Torrington, for instance, you know, they will quickly overwhelm their local resources on those fires. That's why we're called in. We have a backup to that mutual aid where we have partners from all over New England. And if those local resources aren't able to assist, then we're going to reach out nationally. And that's what we're seeing. That's what we saw down in Gatlinburg. We sent engines down to Gatlinburg to assist in their fire need. And we've always been an export state. And once it comes time for us to import people, um, it's going to be a large expense for the state. But it's also going to be, you know, something we we haven't dealt with in my career. So it sounds like the state needs to invest in uh, preventative efforts in personnel. You just mentioned that you've been doing this for 30 years to get some uh, new blood in the department to help to be trained for this. Yeah, it would be great if we had the ability. But I, I understand budgets. I understand everybody has different things. But it's one of those things. It, it's I keep saying we have potential for large fires. We have potential for fatality fires in the state. One of the things that's really going to affect us now is some of the bug infestations that we have. We have emerald ash borer that's wiping out our ash trees. In the eastern part of the state, spreading into the central part of the state, we had gypsy moth defoliation. There's some large tracts of land that we're really concerned about because the canopy is gone. So our spring fire season where the sun was coming down, beating down on the ground there, that's going to continue right through our dry summer months. We have potential for some really large, you know, problematic fires. And a small fire in Connecticut can be very problematic. People are not used to dealing with the smoke. We had a fire in the town of Cornwall that started in September, around September 16th. That fire really burned into January that year. It was a few years ago. Rich, we just have a, a couple of minutes left for listeners who uh, want to help or maybe be a little more fire safe around their properties that might be in the woods. What can you tell them in, in a minute? You know, quickly, the leaf litter and small debris that is very close to your house. This year, cleanup crews are having trouble because of all the rain getting the leaves picked up. So we could have a spring fire season. If you have continuous leaf layer, somebody dumps coals or hot ashes out into their yard and it can go to your house, that's a continuation of fuel. Keep 30 feet, we say, around a structure. It gives you a good defensible area. Um, For firefighters that are interested in our program, we have an application period that will be coming out roughly around January. If you're interested in doing this and assisting on a national level, you're going to be working long days. It's dirty. It's not all that fun. 
Um, but you can apply through our agency, and you can find us on our website. But it's a public service, and we need people like you, Rich. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Rich Shank, again, Fire Control Officer for Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. He helps run the Connecticut Interstate Fire Crew as well. Thanks so much for coming in, Rich. Thanks for having me, Lucy. Uh, today's show uh, produced by Carmen Baskoff. Uh, thanks to WMPR intern Phil Geolopsis. Our technical producer is Kyone Wolf. Learn more about our show, wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As always, thanks for listening.